you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 1, verse 19, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, For context, if you've been tracking with us through the series, we've officially left John's prologue or introduction, and we're stepping into the narrative of this gospel account, and it's a rather intense moment in history. Picture this if you can. After 400 years of prophetic silence from God, all of a sudden, a prophet arises in the wilderness, about two days' travel north of Jerusalem, to the central leadership in the temple, to the power brokers of the day, the cultural and religious elite. John the Baptist is a startling figure. He arises from outside of the inner circle, of religious power out on the fringes, but people are flocking to him there. And though we don't get to see much of what John did or said during that time in the wilderness, we know that over the course of time, thousands of people are streaming to him out in the desert and coming to him to be baptized and to sit under his teaching and listen to what he has to say. And the nation as a whole is beginning to believe that John is in fact a genuine prophet from God. Uh, Not only that, but this wild man in the desert is baptizing Jewish people, which in their context was highly unusual. If you go back to uh, this point in history, baptism existed in some sense, but it was a ritual washing that would happen for uh, pagans or Gentiles who were coming to the God of Israel, who were coming into the Jewish faith uh, and leaving their old life behind. And so there was, this, uh, re- there was this ritual washing that showed I'm stepping over a threshold, I'm coming into the family of God, but it was only for pagans or Gentiles. And here is John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing thousands of Jewish people. Uh, The Jewish people, it was thought, had no need for baptism. They were already the people of God. Uh, But the nation is sort of stirred from top to bottom, and everybody is asking the million-dollar question, which is, who is John the Baptist? Who is this startling figure who's arisen in the wilderness. Uh, What does he want? What does he mean? Where is he going to take this? And so the uh, nation's religious leaders, they need to know as the center of power uh, and sort of political power and spirituality and all of it for the nation, they need to know who this guy is and what he's up to. So the nation's religious leaders send not just one or two people, but an entire delegation to go and investigate John the Baptist and figure out what this is all about. And that's where the narrative picks up. So this is chapter 1, verse 19. It says this. It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. 
Now, the Pharisees who had been, sent, had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of, uh, of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Jesus, as we uh, unpack this moment in history and uh, John the Baptist and who he was and uh, the path he chose to take, Lord, uh, I pray that something would click, that we would actually uh, find ourselves as um, sort of uh, following in the footsteps of John the Baptist, that you would show us what uh, healthy discipleship looks like and that we would learn from uh, some of the, the great men and women who have gone before us in following after you. Would you come and instruct us and uh, shape us and guide us and grow us into people who are more and more like you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. After centuries of laboring under the oppression of the Greeks and the Romans, the nation of Israel is on edge. Tension is rising, and they are crying out for their Messiah. And this uh, Messiah is one who was pictured not just as a spiritual leader, but as equally, if not more so, as a political leader. Uh, one who would come and rescue them from the iron grip of Rome and usher in a new age of spiritual and political freedom for the people of God. Uh, the nation is waiting with bated breath for God to fulfill his promises. In fact, there was such a sense of anticipation during this time that many Jewish women during this, uh, this period of time would actually pray as they were giving birth that the baby they were giving birth to would be the Messiah. Which, if I was giving birth, that wouldn't be the first thing on my mind to pray for. But it gives you a little insight into the tension of this time period and how real this is to them. They know, no, God is going to give us a Messiah, and he's the one who's going to bring about our freedom. So as they're giving birth, they're praying, please, Lord, like, let this baby be the one. Let this be the one who grows up to be our Messiah. So, when thousands of people begin rushing out into the desert to sit under the teaching and be baptized by this mysterious figure, uh, the uh, question is, on everyone's minds, regarding this mysterious figure is this, are you the Messiah? We've all been waiting for this. We, we know that it's going to come any day now. Are you the one? But John insists quite clearly, the text says, he admits freely to the great disappointment of everyone, I am not the Messiah. Next, they ask him, are you Elijah? Now, this seems like an odd question to us. Uh, many of us are thinking, no, um, he already said his name is John. Like, why would you think that he is Elijah? But the backstory there is that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets from the Old Testament, their Bible of the day, never actually died. 
he was sort of swept up to heaven. One of only two people uh, that arguably has this experience throughout the entire Old Testament. Enoch is arguably the other one. Uh, but in either case, Elijah never died. And then years later, Malachi is prophesying about the coming Messiah. And right at the end of Malachi, at the very end of the Old Testament, as part of this uh, imagery of the Messiah coming, it says this. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and, dead, and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Which in context in that passage means before the Messiah comes, I will send Elijah to you. And this really uh, was was uh, built into the Jewish hope. They latched onto this and said, okay, this is our expectation that Elijah will come back out of heaven and he will be sort of the precursor to the Messiah. Uh, and, and so uh, if you're not the Messiah, they're thinking, well, that's a huge, first off, that's a huge letdown. The crowds, most of the people are thinking, surely this is the Messiah. He freely admits, no, I'm not the Messiah. But then the very next question in their mind is, well then, surely you must be Elijah. Surely you are the precursor uh, to the Messiah that's talked about right at the ends of the Old Testament. And, uh, he, and John the Baptist replies essentially saying, no, that, like, that's not actually how I see myself. And this part gets a little bit confusing because later on in Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says to the crowds, if you're willing to accept it, he, meaning John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. So there's a sense in which John is the Elijah that Malachi prophesied about, but perhaps more symbolically and less literally than the Jews were anticipating. In any case, John says, I'm not the Messiah, uh, I'm not Elijah returned from, the, from heaven, and I'm not the prophet. And this third figure of uh, the prophet was simply a future anticipated prophet uh, who was promised to Moses and his generation. And if you go back and read what God promises to them, he says, eventually one day I will send a prophet who is as great or greater than Moses who is generally regarded as the greatest prophet that they'd ever had, said, eventually, I will send you a prophet greater than that. And when he comes, he'll speak the very words of God and the hearts of the people will be soft and they'll finally be able to receive these things from God and understand what this prophet is saying. Uh, and if you go back and look at sort of Jewish culture and history, at this period in time, some of the Jewish people thought that that would be the Messiah, that the two were one, that this mysterious prophet and what would be the Messiah, and others pictured him as, as a separate figure who would kind of come alongside and arise at the same time as the Messiah, but be a separate prophet. Uh, so that was their expectation. But John, rather surprisingly, denies all of these things which is a huge letdown uh, for, for the crowds and for the nation. But what I want us to see for our purposes this morning is how self-defacing all of this is for John the Baptist. Uh, the eyes of the nation are on him. His 15 minutes of fame have come. The crowds are coming in their thousands. He's got an interview with, with, the, with the national religious leaders of the day. Uh, the Spirit of God is resting powerfully on him. And then comes the question, 
Are you the Messiah? And the crowd is waiting on pins and needles. I imagine it was dead silent, but at the same time, the air was just buzzing with energy. There's this explosive atmosphere. All John has to say in that moment is yes. And he can storm Jerusalem with tens of thousands at his back, overthrowing Rome and ushering in their deepest longings and desires. With a single word, he could change history and be a national hero. Instead, he freely says, no. Can you imagine the hearts that just sank in that place? And then the religious elite strike again. Oh, you're not the Messiah. All right, are you the prophet? And if you go back and read what God promised Moses and his generation, John seems to fit the bill. He is a prophet. He is speaking the words that God has given him. And they are finally responding to God and understanding in unprecedented numbers. He's arguably getting a better response than any other prophet in the entire history of, of the prophets that God has given his people. And, and so it would be very, if I was John the Baptist, I would be very tempted to say, actually, yes. I think I am. I think I am the prophet. I think that's me. But again, John says, no. Okay, well, are you Elijah? And this is where things get really crazy because Jesus eventually says that he is the Elijah who was to come. Of all the titles he could have said yes to, and, and, and in any case, all of that aside, even if Jesus hadn't said that, he is fulfilling the role as the precursor to the Messiah. That's his job, that's his calling, and he knows it. And yet, he says no. This, is, this has been prophesied over him since birth. Since before his birth, in Luke 1, if you go back and read, it's this beautiful sort of Christmas account that we love uh, to, to, to share on Christmas. But before John is even conceived, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it says this. This is an angel speaking to his father. It says, John will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He hasn't even been conceived yet. And they're saying, yeah, that's, that's him. Like, th this, is, this is it. Like, dude, that's you. You're the one that Malachi prophesied about. And, and in a stunning move, he says, no. I, I am not Elijah come back, come down from heaven, as you insinuate. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Messiah. I, instead, he says, I am simply a voice calling out in the wilderness. I'm just a trumpet that goes before the king saying, make way, prepare the way. He's coming. That's it. That's, that's all that I am. I am not any of those other things. Sorry. Rather than claiming any of them for himself, rather than transcending his limitations and becoming something more than he is, he's constantly saying no and pointing faithfully to Jesus. And it costs him dearly. 
as a result of this type of sort of self-denial, faithful witness, no, I am not those things, what happens in the aftermath is that the crowds leave him, that his, even his closest disciples and friends who were in his inner circle leave him to go be Jesus' first disciples. In the end, he's rejected by the religious elite. He's left by the crowds. And eventually he ends up arrested and executed in prison. Like that, that's his future. That's the future that he's embracing by saying no to all of these other things. But notice that in the midst of this, John has a clear picture of who he is. He knows who he is, and he knows who he's not. He knows what he's called to say yes to, and he knows what he's called to say no to. He knows his identity, and he knows his limitations. In fact, in the midst of this sort of painful aftermath, as more and more people are leaving him for Jesus, uh, we read this. This is uh, what John says in response to this painful situation. He says, quote, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. What a mature response. In other words, he's saying, I have limits, and I cannot transcend those limits. I'm not going to take on an identity greater than the one that God has given me. I'm not going to transcend that and become something greater. I'm not going to step over that line. I'm not going to pretend to be more than I am. In this same passage, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, and he must become greater, and I must become less. John accepts his limitations. I'm not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I have limited capacity, limited calling, and limited time in the national spotlight. And eventually, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And you think, really? Like, is that true? Because he looks like an over-the-hill prophet who lost God's blessing, who lost his following, who lost his national fame, rejected by the religious elite, dying alone in a prison cell. He wasn't even chosen to be one of the 12 disciples. Jesus prayed about it and chose Judas instead. And John's sitting in a prison cell thinking, really? Like, I'm still in prison and you chose Judas over me? Like, what? In the eyes of the world, John the Baptist does not look like the greatest person who ever lived. But I think one of the reasons Jesus recognizes him as the greatest is because he accepts his identity and he accepts his limitations. You see, he could have easily overstepped his bounds. It was right there in front of him. It was within grasp. 
He could have grabbed that forbidden fruit for himself. He could have transcended his identity, transcended his limitations. He could have become undeniably great in the eyes of the world. And instead, he says no. This is very reminiscent of Jesus being tempted in the desert by all the kingdoms of the world. Satan says, I'm ruling over all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you. Jesus says no. No, that would be transcending the type of Messiah I'm supposed to be and my calling and the life I'm supposed to live and the death I'm supposed to die. He says no. Adam and Eve try to transcend their God-given identities. They try to transcend the limitations that God has given them. That's the story of the garden. And I would actually extrapolate that out. I would actually say that's part of the story of humanity. I think this is something that we've struggled with as a human race all the way through ever since Adam and Eve. Our longing, our fantasy is to transcend our limitations, to transcend our identity, to grab hold of something more. To take the forbidden fruit, to become the Messiah. This is why Sabbath is so hard for us, in our culture especially, because it comes to us in the form of a limitation. This is also why Marvel movies are the biggest movie franchise in all of history. They've made over $20 billion in pure profit. Why? Because our fantasy is about becoming something more, transcending our identity, transcending our limitations. We wish we could be something different, something more. To, to, to override our natural limits, to attain superpowers. We wish that we could fly or shapeshift or shoot webs or teleport or have abs like Captain America. Right? Like, oh, that would be, wow. And I struggle with this all the time. Not with the abs thing, specifically. <laughs> But just with this human desire to transcend. Uh, I, I want to do more, be more, transcend my God-given identity and limitations. I just need more energy and more money and more time and more supplements and more whatever it is in order to transcend those limits. In fact, I can find this written into all of my own personal fantasies. What if I won the lottery? What if I just won tens of millions of dollars? Now, I've never played the lottery before, so my chances of winning are just infinitesimally low. But I think about that sometimes. What if I just went and bought one ticket and I won? $30 million, sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want. Then I start thinking, oh, wouldn't that be awesome? I would pay off you know, the money that we owe on our home and we would start investing in new kingdom ventures and we wouldn't have to drive a minivan if we didn't want to. And oh, have you seen the new like Tesla Model Y? And oh man, and you know what? We wouldn't have to live in this house anymore. We could actually move further out of town and get a house that was much bigger and had a bunch of acreage. And yeah, it's really far out there, 
but it wouldn't matter if we had a helicopter. And, and then you just start going and go, and what, what if there was no limit? What if, there was, what if my God-given salary was no longer a limit on my life? What if I could transcend that and have something more? Uh, over the years, I've been asked the icebreaker question. Maybe you've been asked this. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? And then everyone kind of shares and laughs about it. Well, I realized over the years, I was always gravitating back to the same sorts of things. Right? One of them was uh, the ability to absorb the knowledge in a book by osmosis. Right? Like I just pick up a book and just touch it, and in a few minutes, it's just like matrix style, like boom, uploaded into my, uh, into my mind. It's all there. And then I could just kind of move on to the next book. Or I, I've had the, um, the sort of the, the fantasy or the superpower about like, what if I could pause time? And just sort of step outside of time for a moment. Like just pause time, step back, work an eight-hour day or do all of my homework or whatever, and then step back into the normal time continuum. You know, no time wasted. Or, or what if I didn't need to sleep anymore, but I always felt rested? Which, if you're a parent with a new baby, that like makes you want to cry a little bit. But... But think about those. Think about those answers. What, what's the common thread among all of those things? Those embedded in every one of those fantasies is the desire to transcend. I want to transcend my God-given salary. I want to transcend the number of hours in a day. I want to whatever, it, whatever my God-given limits and identity is and are, I, I want to transcend those things. And, and this is seen as, as virtue in our culture. Of course we want to do that. Of course you should become something more. Of course you should transcend. But notice that John the Baptist is the greatest person on earth, second only to Jesus, and, and he was a man who knew his limitations. In fact, Jesus himself and John the Baptist and millions of other healthy disciples over the last 2,000 years have recognized their limits, learned to embrace their limits, and even learned to celebrate and flourish within their God-given limitations. This was what Satan targeted with Adam and Eve in the garden. And with Jesus in the desert, it was a temptation to transcend your limitations, transcend your God-given identity, uh, and, and grab hold of something more. This was, I believe, the temptation of John the Baptist when the delegation came to him. Just one word. Just say yes, and you will have the entire nation eating out of your hand. But where Adam and Eve failed... Jesus and John succeeded. And they invite us into this victorious type of life. The ability to confess freely, I am not Iron Man. I am not Elijah. I am not the Messiah. This is completely foreign to our culture. It's not virtue in the Western world. It's not something that we seek after. It's not desirable. Even this week, as millions of us sit down to write New Year's resolutions, what will they inevitably uh, focus and orbit around? I want to do more. I want to make more. I want to become more. 
I want to transcend what I have right now. I will become Iron Man. That's, that's virtue. This is why, as a culture, we're tempted to say yes to everything. Most of us have a very difficult time saying no, especially if we sense it's a good thing. Uh, this is why the whole idea of a Sabbath day is really hard for us. Uh, the Sabbath was a, an invitation to the people of God to have an entire day without work where you just rest and do things that are life-giving and you delight in God and you delight in others, the things that God has given you. Uh, you, you know what the Sabbath day is and was? It's an opportunity to say, I am human I have limits, I am not God, I am not in charge of the world. Uh, the Sabbath day is actually an opportunity to walk in the footsteps of John the Baptist and say, I am not the Messiah. And this sounds so simple on paper, but it's actually really hard to do because there's a small part of you that thinks that you are God that thinks that the world somehow revolves around you or is dependent on you, that the world will fall apart if you take your eyes off of it. And, and if you want proof of that, just try to Sabbath. And if you really want to Sabbath, try turning off your phone for a full 24 hours. <laughs> Unplugging, yes. Thank you, Lord. But just do that exercise and, and just see what happens within you. See how you feel. Because most of us will think like, wait, what? Like, if, if I'm unplugged for 24, like if I don't post anything for 24 hours, won't social media like collapse without me? Like what will happen to Instagram stock if I'm not there to post three times a day? Uh, what will happen to the business I started if I'm not there to, to prop it up 80 hours a week? What will happen? Won't my kids end up in prison if I'm not there to chastise them every 15 minutes of the day? Like, like we think, we slip into this place of thinking, no, I, I am. It, th those ways of thinking are appropriately called a Messiah complex. We actually call it that. Because we slip into this place of believing, no, the world is actually dependent upon me. And, and as we're thinking that way, a delegation presents itself in our minds and says, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? And, and coming up from our subconscious mind, all of a sudden this response is, yes. Yeah, maybe I am. Maybe, maybe I am the Messiah. Maybe the world really is dependent on me. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to prove that to ourselves and to others. One of the reasons that John the Baptist is so great is not just what he says, it's what he fails to say. It's not just what he does, it's what he refrains from doing. 
He knows who he is, he knows what he's called to do, and he knows who he's not and what he's not called to do. If anyone on earth was justified in having a Messiah complex, it was John the Baptist. And yet he freely confesses, no, that's not He knows who he is, and he knows when to say no. So, as we close, in honor of John the Baptist, uh, we're going to take a few moments here to think about a bunch of stuff that is very counterintuitive in our culture, especially in this atmosphere and this week of New Year's resolutions and thinking about the year ahead. Uh, But our first question to contemplate this morning is this. Uh, What is God calling me to say no to in this season? Question number two, what does it look like for me to embrace my natural limitations? And I've listed some there to get you thinking. Your age, your income, your family commitments and family size, the age of your kids, those are all natural limitations in this season. Your social capacity, your natural energy levels, all of that. Uh, One thing you could contemplate within this, if you're a New Year's resolution type of person, is thinking along these lines. What does it look like to schedule rest as a goal? To receive the Sabbath not just as an ugly limitation, but actually as a gift from God? And then question number three, in what ways do I struggle in thinking that I am God, that I am the Messiah, I am the prophet, that the world is somehow dependent on me? So what we're going to do before we worship here is take a few minutes to just contemplate these questions. If you take notes on your phone or you have a journal or anything like that, I'd encourage you uh, to journal. But I want us to, to recognize this morning that this is part of discipleship. That part of discipleship to Jesus becoming more like him is actually learning over time, this is who I am and this is who I'm not. This is what I'm called to. This is what I'm not called to. This is what God's asked me to say yes to. And this is what I say yes to outside of God's blessing. Just because I think I should. This is God's role in creation. This is my role in creation. I know I keep talking about the Sabbath day, but it's, it's a day, it's a challenge posed to the Western world to have a whole 24 hours of just saying, God I will let you be God. That's what it is. I'll let you run the world. I'm going to step back and recognize I am not those things. So this is a a lifelong thing that we learn as part of our apprenticeship to Jesus. But we're going to take a few minutes and allow God to just speak into these things right now. So I'll pray and then we'll spend some time. Jesus, we uh, recognize, maybe as, uh, as silly as it sounds, that you are the Messiah and that we are not, that you created the world and, and we did not, that you're the one who actually makes it buzz and hum and work and function. You sustain it actively and we do not. We recognize, as the scriptures say, that you teach us to number our days, Lord, to live in light of the fact that our lives are really short and that we shouldn't waste them. 
saying yes to the wrong things, trying to be something that we're not, imagining in a very stressful way that we somehow are the Messiah, that the world somehow is dependent on us, that if we take our eyes off of it, it's all going to fall apart. It's a source of so much anxiety. Once we step over that line, Lord, we have to prop everything up by ourselves. So this morning, Lord, we take a step back. We recalibrate. We want to dream incredible dreams with you for the year ahead. We do want to become more than we are, but not in the way the world would have us do it, in the way that you would have us do it. We want to continue to be formed into your image. And part of it is this. It's learning what to say yes to, what to say no to, when to work, when to rest, when to, when to um, sit back and settle into your goodness and just trust. Lord, would you teach us this? Would you whisper to us now as a matter of discipleship? In Jesus' name, amen.